0: Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL, Most Valuable Listener, on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. I was sitting on the
1: train on my way home, and I opened up my inbox, and it said, congratulations, your talk has been accepted. And I screamed, and then I cried, and then I laughed hysterically, and I definitely scared the two old ladies in front of me.
0: My name's Espri Devora, host of the Women in Tech show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create the Women in Tech show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I.
1: Command Line Heroes is an original, highly produced, award winning podcast about the people who transform technology from the command line up, presented by Red Hat. And this is not a technical show. This is a show anyone can enjoy, featuring experts from across the industry. Season four is airing now, so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and stick around to the end of the show to hear a sneak preview of the brand
0: new season. Hi everyone, this is Janina Scarlett. I'm from Venezuela, currently living in San Francisco, and I'm a front-end engineer at 4Thought Technologies. I've been listening to Command Line Heroes for about six months now, and actually, a friend recommended me this podcast, and I was so happy she did. One of the things I enjoy about this podcast the most is the dramatic tone in which the message is delivered. It makes it so engaging to me while still explaining the history of different aspects of computing in an epic way. You can connect with me at GG underscore codes, spelled as G-I-G-I underscore codes on Instagram. I can't wait to connect
1: with you guys. Hi, my name is Ulvia Jafarli, and I'm a data science master degree student at Sapienza University of Rome. At the same time, I'm a founder of DevOps organization. I have recently started to listen to Command Line Heroes for about one or two months ago. Of course, it's very, very inspiring, first of all, especially for me as a young tech woman, as a student, I listen to many stories, learn from them, they show me how far I can go, what can I achieve in tech platform? Honestly, while I listen, I feel very proud and valuable that I choose to be in technology. So thanks a lot. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram with profiles Ujafar and TechTabap.
0: If you, too, want to connect and collaborate with more incredible women in tech, remember you can go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com we would not be able to support and celebrate women in tech around the world if it weren't for you thank you so much for being a listener and a fan of the show to contribute and donate simply go to women on the upper right hand side and click donate which empowers us to continue celebrating women in tech around the world thank you for being a part of our journey Welcome back to the Women in Tech podcast, celebrating women in tech around the world. We are 100 countries strong. Yes, so excited for our next guest. She is awesome. She is empowering women around the world. She is teaching us how to code. She is inspiring us with podcasting. Hello, Saron. Hello, how are you? I'm good. So, okay, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Sure. So my name is Saran. Um, I am a coder by trade. For the past six years, I've been building a community of people learning to code and developers online called Code Newbie. We recently got acquired um, a little while ago by Dev, which is an even bigger community of developers and people learning how to code. Um, they have an amazing blogging platform and they're expanding into events and podcasts, which is why they acquired us. Um, and so at Code Newbie, we specialize in podcasts and conferences. So we do two shows, one called Basey's Podcast. Which is all about teaching computer science topics in twenty-minute episodes, and then we have our flagship, which is our Code Be podcast, which is um, all about doing interviews with people from all different types of backgrounds, all different coding languages and stacks, and just trying to paint a more realistic picture, I would say, of who is a coder and what does a coder look like, and the fact that. There is no one definition. Um, So trying to, you know, spread that message of validation to people who are looking to get into the industry. And then we also have our uh, main conference called Codeland, which is all about inspiring people and getting them really excited about all the things they can build with code.
0: It's so exciting. And you are the host of Command Line Heroes.
1: That's right. Produced by Red Hat. A really great show that goes through all the history of open source. Um, our current season right now is all about hardware, which is very exciting. So we get to talk about the Altair 8800. We talk about the GE 225. We talk about the Palm Pilot, um, if people remember the Palm Pilot. So yeah, it's a really great show and really excited to host it.
0: And so there's so much to dive into from your events to having your company acquired to hosting podcasts and what that's like to podcasting going from people not really understanding the technology to it becoming the new blog today. There's so much to get into. Let's get started with your most recent celebration. Your company got acquired. Was this the first time you had an acquisition?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) And what was that like?
0: Were you looking to be acquired? Um, Can you kind of bring us into a glimpse of that world?
1: Sure. So I was trying to figure out kind of the future of the company. So at that point, I'd hired my first full-time employee and I had a contractor who was working on social media stuff. And I was trying to figure out what the long-term plan was it. I was about to start school. I'm currently getting my MBA at Columbia, which is just, oh my goodness, just so, so hard. It's very, very difficult. Um, and so I was trying to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. Is it something that's going to kind of run on the side? Is it something that I would you know hire a manager to oversee? Is it something that um might be able to find a better home, a more long-term home somewhere else. I was trying to figure out kind of like what the future of the company was going to be. And around that time, I was talking to Ben Halpern, who's one of the co-founders of Dev. And I was, you know, just doing a, a coffee, just kind of catching up with him. And I said, you know, I'm not really sure like kind of what to do with it. And he goes, well, we could acquire it. And I was like, oh. That's Get an interesting out. idea. <laughs> and so we spent like the next hour just brainstorming about what an acquisition could look like and, you know, the pros and cons and how it would operate and all that. And then I think a couple of months later, it actually happened. So, yeah.
0: Walk us through, kind of give us the lay of the land. How long had your company Code Newbies, existed? How did you come up with it? It, What what did it look like before that acquisition conversation even happened?
1: Sure. So it started almost six years ago. And the way it got started was I was a boot camp student at the Flatiron School six years ago, and I had really gotten into the idea of learning to code. I'd worked in startups for a couple of years, and I always felt limited by how much I could contribute and how big of an impact I could make on a given team if I didn't know how to code. I was doing marketing. I was doing, you know, sales and, you know, account management. And I just felt like in a high growth tech startup, I was the first to go. You know, my position was the least important position of the team. And it was really the engineers, the coders who were the most important people on the team. And so what was your
0: position again?
1: I've done a couple things. I've done a little bit of marketing. I've done, um, I was an account executive at my first job. I've done some business development. So I've done a little bit of this and that, but all more around the sales and businessy side of things, not so much on product. So that was the big thing I was missing. And so I felt like I was always looking over the shoulder of the coders and looking at their screens and going, I don't know what any of this means, but this looks really exciting. And so after a couple of years of working in startups, I said, I think it's time for me to invest in my future in my education and actually learn how to code. So I left my last startup. I learned how to code for a couple months and then I decided to apply, I got accepted into a boot camp. And that was another three months of learning full time. Um, I was really lucky. I was living with my then boyfriend, now husband, and he like took care of the home (laughs) Um, so I could focus on school, which I'm very, very fortunate, very privileged to have that opportunity. And so when I was in that school, I realized that the curriculum was very strong. We had an amazing teacher. But really, the value of that program was the community. It was being able to sit in a room full of 44 other people who understood exactly what it felt when everything went wrong. And knew exactly what it felt when everything finally came together. And it was really that sense of community that really made my journey possible and made it a lot more fruitful than it would have been. And that journey, that experience, cost $11,000 out of pocket. The thing about boot camps is there aren't any like student loans. That's not really a thing. It's not an accredited institution. There's no degree. There's usually no payment plan. Nowadays, it's a lot more interesting financing opportunities. But back then, there definitely was no payment plan. So it was a huge financial risk. And it's a risk that, frankly, not everyone can take. And so I looked at that and I said, well, how do other people find community if they can't go to a boot camp? If you can't afford to quit your job, do this risky thing full-time and spend this, you know, thousands of dollars on this opportunity, well, where do you find your community? And back then, the online community just wasn't quite as strong. Nowadays, it's much easier. Back then, there really wasn't very much going on. And so I said, okay, I want to create this community for people. Let's start by doing a Twitter chat. And Twitter chats back then were all the rage. Everyone had one. And it was a really great opportunity to pick a time, pick a day. For us, it was Wednesday at 9 p.m. We picked a hashtag called Code Doobie. And we would tweet out questions every Wednesday at 9 p.m. And the questions we based on some topic. So, for example, open source. What was your first open source contribution? Have you heard of open source? What words do you associate with open source? Just trying to start that conversation and get it going. And we did this for six months, every week for six months. And before we knew it, people were joining people were expecting it to happen it became part of their calendar became part of their week and so after 6 months of doing this i said you know chats are a really great way to have a lot of conversations at the same time but it's not a great way to kind of dig deep into a particular topic or a person and so i thought podcasting that's a great tool to just focus on one thing at a time and just really dig deep and explore
0: and what year was this i think this was end of 2013 so before podcasting was even on the radar as a trend.
1: Yeah, like there were some, like there were definitely some, you know, staples of the tech podcast world, but definitely not as many as there are today. <laughs> Nowadays, <laughs> it feels like everyone has a podcast. and back then, it definitely was not that popular of a medium. And so we did the podcast, we interviewed different people. And I think maybe a few months into doing the podcast, I got an email from a company who said, hey, I'll give you 200 bucks if you run an ad on your show. And that's when I thought, holy crap, I can make money from this? Like this can be an actual sustainable business. And so that's kind of when it officially went from this kind of fun side project thing to a side business. So yeah, that's how we got started.
0: And you've mentioned we a few times. In the beginning, who was we? Yeah, so
1: it was me and my friend Carlos. So he was in the boot camp with me. He graduated a class before I did. And he was a big part of our local community. He was, you know, one of the the mentors. He always came back to school. He attended all of our talks. And so when I wanted to start this Twitter chat, I reached out to him and I said, hey, we should do this together. You're like, you understand the value of community. You're a huge part of our bootcamp community. And so we worked together for, I think it like the first six months. And then once it turned to a podcast, then it was just me.
0: Now, did the community that you had rallied together on the Twitter list engagement, transition into being podcast listeners or where did you get your initial set of listeners from I think the twitter
1: chat people translated it's hard to measure just cuz you know podcast stats aren't very good but i think another really big source of it was that i was a panelist on another podcast called The Ruby Rogues, which at the time was one of the podcasts to listen to if you were part of the Ruby um, the Ruby on Rails community. And so I was a panelist there, I think at the time, maybe for like a few months. And I was launching my show and I was getting advice from the host of that show. And he was just a huge champion. I mean, he would plug my show, my new show, almost every episode. And he would say, you know, go check out Saran's new show. It's Code Newbie. It's great. And that really helped. So I think being able to go on other podcasts and have people really believe in me and support me, I think that got me a a nice following, especially in the beginning.
0: And just because I feel that as a culture, sometimes we don't know how to do self promotion. How were you able to talk about your show on other shows? Can you give us some suggestions on how to let people know we exist and where our, where you can find our work. <laughs> Yeah,
1: I mean, I think it's important to tell the story around the show. So I don't think it would work. And frankly, I don't think it'd be very interesting for me to go, I host this show. You should listen to it. It is really good. But when I tell the story of I learned how to code, I went to a boot camp, This, you know, like creating mm-hmm. the, um, the origin story of it, I think that's really compelling. And I think there are a lot of opportunities in that story that hopefully people can relate to. I think people can relate to feeling like they have a dead end job. I think that people can relate to the importance of community and having a support system. I think people can relate to you know wanting to try something new and being excited about a new idea. So I think there's a lot of parts to my uh, origin story, to the CodeNubi origin story, that I feel like are relatable to a lot of people, and that's what makes it interesting. And that's what allows me to share the story without feeling like I'm pushing a show on someone.
0: Very cool. And I want to dive a little bit deeper into podcasting because I get so many people asking me about podcasting and then I'd love love to evolve into when the events came to be. Um, sure. But podcasting itself, so listeners could walk away feeling, if she can do it, so can I. Mm-hmm. Um, how long did it take you to produce the podcast? Were you working another job while you were doing it, or were you doing it full time? What's kind of something? So a listener right now can set up their expectations. They're thinking, I want to go do a podcast, but I really don't know how what kind of time requirements should they expect in those initial months?
1: Sure. So I was doing Code Newbie on the side for the first three years. So for the first three years, I had a full time job. Um, and I was doing it just as a side business as a little little side hustle. In terms of specifically the podcast, I don't remember how long it took me to do that first episode. But I can tell you it took three tries, because our audio kept messing up. So, the first time we tried it, I think it was the guest audio that got messed up for some reason. Then we tried it again and it was my feed that got messed up. And then the third time, I felt really bad asking him <laughs> to re record a third episode. So, I transcribed my parts. Of that second interview, and then I dubbed myself, which is very awkward. I do not suggest doing that, and it sounds like a very horrible dubbed episode. I can't believe people listened to it and came back. Um, so <laughs> it was it was very awkward. It was you know a ton of failure. Was not discouraged. Still believed in myself. But yeah, it was a rocky start. Um, you should but see I,
0: my face right now. I cannot yeah. <laughs> believe. I'm like in shock <laughs> because I know what it takes to produce a show. I'm like that sounds. So time intensive and difficult.
1: Yeah. yeah, it was intense, but I feel like I, I had an advantage because my first job out of college was working at NPR, National Public Radio. And so I felt very like confident in my ability mm. to figure it out because I worked on a professional show before, you know? Um, and on that show, I didn't really do any audio production. I was a writer on that show, but just being in that world and being really familiar, working with a host, booking guests, you know, just being in that environment, I think gave me a lot of confidence that even though I'd never actually produced a show before, and I had to learn about different mics and had to learn about different software. I just felt like I could figure it out, you know. And I think right. that feeling got me through the first uh, three failed recordings.
0: <laughs> and when you said you had Code newbie for three years, you had Code newbie for three years as Code newbie, or you had the podcast yes. for three years?
1: No, I had it um, as, a, as an LLC for three years before finally quitting my job. Yeah.
0: Oh, got it. OK, so all encompassing. And right. was your job at that point as an engineer, did you get it through Flatiron? So the first job I had, I got through Flatiron. And, well, actually, I
1: think both of them I got through Flatiron. So the first one was, um, I think our official title was Hacker in Residence. So we were, um, you know, it was a seven-month position where we worked with this nonprofit called the New York Tech Meetup, and we built out their social media platform that they wanted to have and their ticketing system that they wanted to have built. And then after that, through a connection that I made at the Flatiron School's Um, They have like a science fair, you know, a career fair type thing where we can show off our, our apps and stuff. I met someone there who ended up giving me an internship that turned into a job offer. So, yeah, both of those opportunities I ended up getting from the school.
0: And for those of you who don't know, I know we mentioned it right at the beginning of her talking, but Flatiron is a really respectable coding academy to learn how to become a-, a coder. How can people research the different options they have for coding? Would you call it coding boot camps? No, coding yeah. academy. What's the uh, boot, yeah. camps? Yeah. boot camps? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, coding boot camps. coding How can we search which one is the right fit for us?
1: Yeah, that's really tough. So there are official places you can go to. So Course Report is one. Switch Up, I think is what it's called, is another one that offers reviews. I think another really good option is to find people who went to those boot camps and just email them and Mm -hmm. say, hey, I'm thinking about going. What are your thoughts? Because, I mean, the, the thing is, it's people aren't going to you know, disparage any institution online. They're less likely to. So I'm always kind of wary of like, how honest of a review can it really be? You know what I mean? Like I'm always totally. kind of wary of that. So I think the, the best thing you can do is go on LinkedIn. People usually will put their bootcamp as part of their education experience, do a search by bootcamp, and then see if you can message, find their email address, Find their, um, you know, Twitter handle, DM them, and say, "Hey, I'm thinking about going to the school. What do you think?" Some people are very open about their feelings and do end up writing, you know, blog posts and stuff. So that's a good place to start as well. But my best advice is to find people yourself and then ask them what their experience was like.
0: Completely agree. And one of the biggest advantages, and I know this early on in the Women in Tech podcast, Hack Reactor, which is also a coding boot camp, mm-hmm. was a sponsor of the show. So I know that a big responsibility for these coding boot camps is to actually get you a position out of the mm-hmm. program. So I've worked in technology my entire life, and I too thought that I would probably want to evolve into coding and i ended up taking a program called one month it originally was called i think one month rails Mm -hmm. and amazing program but for me i learned that it's not right for me and i think it's Mm. important to know that you're going to have that discovery process too to find out if if this is really a good fit for how you want to engage with the computer (laughs) you know yeah absolutely Um,
1: Absolutely. And I think that a boot camp should really be the last step. I don't think it's the first step Mm. that people should do. I think they should read a book or two, do a code academy or a a code school. You know, there's so many either free or just really cheap, affordable things online. I think start with that. See how you like it. See how you feel. And I think very quickly you'll realize, oh, man, I need to be in a classroom you know like i think you you'll get that 100%. feeling and then you can do the really t- and the other thing about bootcamps is it's really intense like it's a mm-hmm. lot of information in a really short time frame you can't control the pace the way that you can a book so the more familiar you are with the content going in the better you'll do in the bootcamp experience Totally.
0: Think about it. Like I even had a friend uh, live with me for three months going to a coding boot camp. Think about it like going to like really intense college or like you said, you're getting your MBA from Columbia. It's no joke. It's a serious. You need to (laughs) you need to sacrifice a lot of things in your life and prioritize the boot camp. So I think what you're saying is so spot on and doing something like. There's this educational site called Udemy. I'm sure they have a coding mm-hmm. thing like I did the one month really quality and low cost doing something virtual, low lift, just to see if you like it and then right. invest in changing your life and investing the money. If you're like, yep, this is for me, then go yes. like go for it hardcore. Yeah, absolutely. So awesome. OK, and then how did you evolve into the events then? And and what was the intention behind the events? So I do
1: a lot of speaking. I've been speaking for the past maybe five or six years. I do different talking engagements all over the world. And so I've been to a lot of conferences. And I've been taking notes on the things that I like about them, the things that I don't like, the things that I would change. And one thing that was really clear to me was that there really isn't a conference for new developers For a lot of conferences, you kind of assume Mm. that you're usually like a mid-level developer,
0: an intermediate developer. That's true. Right? Yeah. And even It's only like wannabes or super seasoned. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But not committed, serious,
1: but don't know the intel yet.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And
1: even the talks that are labeled as beginner, it's not beginner to the world of coding. It's beginner to that one language. Mm -hmm. You know? So if there's like a Django talk and that's labeled beginner, usually it's made for people who might know another programming language or another framework already and just haven't used Django before. So it's still just a different level of uh, talk. It's a different type of, of content. Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted to create something for my community, something that I felt like really captured the the place that people were when they were you know, within a year or two of getting that first job. And the other really big thing that I notice about tech conferences is usually the technology is the most important part, which, you know, feels obvious as a tech conference. Obviously, tech is important. But for newer people, it's not technology for technology's sake it's the why it's the who it's the how it's Mm -hmm. who is this technology serving and what problem is it solving and in what community you know what I mean like it's the the story around the tech that's actually really exciting and so for us we approach technology as a tool but we want the rest of the story we want to hear how it's being applied who it's used for that you Mm -hmm. know that side of things and so we use technology as a tool to solve problems and we really focus our talks and our content on the problems that are being solved by technology.
0: First of all, your story and your mission are so admirably clear. I love it. And I can see (laughs) why people are attracted to what you do, because you're so consistent about how your work impacts someone's life. It's like, and this is how it relates to me. So I just really appreciate that because I think that's really hard to do. Another thing that it seems like you do really well is I have a gut feeling you're really good at defining your value. And I would love to dive into that a little bit because again, as a culture, I think that that's something that we could all improve together. You talked about speaking gigs. Do you get paid as a speaker? I get paid mostly for domestic, not always for international. And how do you set your value? What do you think about If you don't mind me asking, is this okay that sure. I ask you? Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How do you set money. your value and how do you ask for your worth? And how do you understand how much you're worth? In the
1: world of modern technology, we open our laptops, scroll endlessly on our smartphones, send tons of data to the cloud. And we don't think twice about it. But have you ever wondered how we got to now with our personal devices? What it took were teams of engineers and programmers who had the vision and audacity to build new machines. I'm Saran Yitbarek. Join me for an incredible new season of the podcast. And keep on coding. Season four is airing now. Subscribe to Command Line Heroes today, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, my name is Erin Dayanko. I'm an urban and spatial planner and co-founder of Kikilicious, a food-based online platform. With everything that I do, I'm always trying to compete with time to squeeze everything in, so listening to podcasts while I'm working is one of those always-go activities. This is also how I came across to command Line Heroes about a year ago. We often read or listen about stories of words that changed the world, big important negotiations, that brought crucial changes to the way we operate today. And in that perspective, the podcast does something very important. It builds a history behind many aspects of technology that we use today, but we often take for granted. And Saran does all that in such a fun and engaging way that you just cannot wait to listen to yet another episode or another story. And you can connect with me through LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook, all just using my name and last name together. Hey, this is Kaka. I just started to listen to Comed Line Heroes and I'm just in love. It's amazing to know more about people who work to change the world and turn the tech world more close and better to everyone. You can connect with me on Instagram. My ID is w 3 ccode How do you ask for your worth? And how do you understand how
1: much you're worth? Yeah. So I just increase my prices every so often to test the market. That's really what it is. Like there's no formula to it. My first speaking fee price came from the fact that it was just offered to me. Um, I've been speaking for free for maybe a handful of conferences. And then this one conference was like, I'll give you, how much was it? Was it like $1,000? I think it was like 1,000, maybe 1,500 bucks to speak at. And I didn't ask for it. That's just the speaking fee that they were giving all the speakers. And I was like, oh wow, I can get paid to do this. It's crazy. (laughs) After that happened, I was like, from now on my speaking fee is $1,000. And then after maybe like a year of that, I was like, let's try 1,500 and see what happens. And then that was fine. And then I said, okay, what about like 2000 And then that was acceptable. And then I was like, okay, what about like twenty five? You know, what I, mean? I just kept yeah. increasing it just every six months to a year until now I charge five. And not everyone says yes. People definitely like, balk at that, you know, occasionally, and they go like, what? Like, we don't pay our speakers at all, which is fine. Like, I totally get that, you know, not everyone can afford a speaking fee, just depending on the conference. Not everyone just does a speaking fee. It's just not an an expected part of the, the community, which I totally as a conference organizer, I understand that. But that's my fee. And frankly, because I've done enough speaking gigs that it's not something that I require for my career, if that makes sense. Like, I think that speaking can be a really powerful way of getting a job. It can be a powerful way of generating business, you know, it's it can be a very powerful tool and I feel like I've done enough speaking in the communities that I care about that I don't feel like I need to speak. I'm comfortable charging, you know, a a relatively high speaking fee and being turned down. That's totally fine. If I really wanted everyone to say
0: yes, I would probably decrease it. But I feel comfortable getting no's at this point. That's what I was gonna ask. Do you ever experience FOMO? Like by not taking on the event, not lowering your price. Do you ever feel like, ah, oh, am I making the right decision? Or even saying your price in the first place? Are you like, oh, what if they turn it down and then I won't have this opportunity?
1: Not really, because usually it's a negotiation. So I've said five and then I've been – and they've been like, look, we just can't do more than 25. Like that's just the most we can do. Um, And I've said okay to that in the past depending on their reasoning, size the conference, if I believe them, you know, like depending on the situation. But no, I don't think so. So the way that I phrase it is – so first of all, I never say my speaking fee up front. I say, do you cover travel expenses and the speaking fee? And they'll usually either say, you know, yes or no. Sometimes they'll say this is the most we can cover. And then usually they'll ask, like, what is your speaking fee? And I'll say, usually my speaking fee is 5000 And then it's kind of up to them to go, the most we can do is this. Or for them to go, I'm sorry, we just don't. Cu-. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of, it's their right. decision. And most people, like, I don't think anyone has flat out said, actually, never mind. <laughs> you know? Totally. Like, it's, you know, it's usually been like, I'm really sorry. We just can't afford that. Or the best we can do is, you know, 500 I try and position it such that I am open. Like, it's more of, this is my standard but what can you do you know totally
0: and i think it's important for all of us to remember that it's not a personal conversation somebody no, saying not. that they can't pay 5000 doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you i think it's really important for all of us to show up to show up with our worth you know and i know i, I i'm kind of getting a little hokey but a lot of people ask me Out of all the episodes of Udo, what have you learned about women in tech globally? (laughs) And honestly, Mm -hmm. it hasn't been anything about technology. It's been as a culture. We don't value ourselves enough. Yeah. I mean, the way I look at that is it's not about you. It's about the market.
1: It's really that simple. Like it is not about what you think you are worth. It is what does the market think you are worth? And if I can get paid $5,000 to speak, the market has spoken. It has told me that my time is worth $5,000. Not to everyone, not all the time, but to somebody. And I found those people who, you know, are part of my market. I think the other kind of strategic thing to think about is To put yourself in a position where you don't need that one person to say yes. and I know this is hard. Mm. This is very, very situational, very subjective. And, you know, a lot of times you're just not in control. But if you are going after one lead... And you just need that lead to say yes. Maybe you should be going out for more leads. You know, maybe that's a sign that we need to double our sales efforts and try and have at least a totally. handful at the same time. You know what I mean? Like if you're trying to speak at conferences, don't just email one conference organizer. Email like twenty of them, right. and that way each one becomes a little less valuable, and you're able to assert your your value with a little bit more confidence. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, the best negotiations are done when you can walk away. Like that is the ultimate negotiation move, right? So Completely. the more we can, and I think this really comes into effect when we talk about just like saving money in general. Like my husband and I are incredibly frugal. We do a budget every single month. You know, like we know exactly where every dollar goes. We save the majority of our paychecks. And it's put us in positions where we can say, I don't need to take this stupid deal that doesn't respect me. You know what I mean? Like we can be in those positions where we can just like turn things down or just, you know, state higher prices that more often than not do end up working out. So, I highly encourage people to be financially responsible and to, like, save their money and to, you know, just, like, make those everyday decisions that I think aren't always going to be the deciding factor, but at least can help, you know, and can help get us to a place where, like, maybe we don't need that one yes.
0: And as we flow into the conversation about your company getting acquired, to give us an understanding of the elements, at this point, uh, what kind of listenership and attendance did Code Newbies have? What was the landscape of your company?
1: Sure. So for the conference we had, I'm trying to remember, I think we had like 250 the first year, I think about 300 the second year. And this past year, we got a bigger venue and we had about 500, I think it was, people attend. So it's growing, growing, you know, by a little bit each year, which is very exciting. And your podcast, where were you with your podcast at that point?
0: And how many episodes do you come out with? Was it four a month? So we do seasons
1: now. So we've been doing seasons for the last, um, I think, like two, three years. And so we have done almost 300 episodes. I don't think we've quite gotten to 300 yet. And so the way that we think about the show is we do two months. So we do eight episodes per quarter. So -hmm. we do two months of episodes and then we take a month
0: off. Perfect. When Dev wanted to acquire CodeNewbie, was it the whole CodeNewbie or was it mainly the podcast or mainly the events? What part of CodeNewbie had the most value for Dev?
1: Yeah, it was the content and the brand. So for them, the brand was really important. The fact that it's really trusted and really loved by people who are in our community, people who are getting into code for the first time was really important to them. And then the fact that we were doing the type of content that they weren't doing yet. So the fact mm. that they were interested into getting into podcasts and we had two really successful ones, the fact that they were thinking about a conference and we'd already done a conference that, you know, was really popular and really well received. And so we were kind of doing the things that they were thinking about doing that they hadn't quite done. And so instead of, you know, starting from scratch, they get to have a head start.
0: And what did an acquisition conversation look like? Was it scary at first? Uh, What kind of paperwork does that involve? And how many people were on your team at that
1: point? Sure. So at that point, it was myself, my producer, and our social media manager. It was the three of us. And the conversation was, I think that I was really worried about not knowing what to ask for, because it was my first acquisition. I don't have investors. So there isn't like a board I can go to with people who have years of experience doing this kind of thing, you know. And so I just wasn't sure what was the supposed to go down and how it was supposed to play out. I did a bunch of research on just, you know, what are the different aspects of a deal? What could I ask for? I think Dev was just a dream to work with. They were incredibly collaborative, really just open and honest about sharing their information, sharing their numbers. Um, I have a, a really great lawyer who does a lot of contracts, and he definitely had some, you know, incredible insights on, you know, what I should watch out for and what I should definitely include and I want to steer, you know, clear of. So it was nerve wracking. But I think it it was also really useful that this wasn't something kind of going back to, you know, what position do you put yourself in? This wasn't something that I needed to happen. It was really cool if it happened. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So I felt really comfortable negotiating for what I really wanted and, you know, how much I was asking for. And I felt confident in that because... It was a successful business you know if they decided that it wasn't a good fit that's okay it can just keep going as a regular business and that would have been fine so I didn't need the acquisition which I think is a really good place to negotiate from
0: and you know that whole 80 20 principle where what is it where you spend 20% of your time creates 80% of the results I think I yeah. think that's goes what was your 20% that led to the 80% results kind of kind of thing
1: yeah, great question. So there were two moments, I would say, that that kind of made that 20%. The first is that I think it was four years ago now my husband and I attended the podcast movement which is this huge right. conference for podcasters I think it's like the conference for podcasters I learned some like really key things that literally changed the business so one of the things that we learned about was this idea of dynamic ads which I'd never heard of before um, we also call it ad insertion so the the way it works is when you have an episode usually you will add the ad at the ad to the latest episode that you published, and that ad will be forever embedded in that episode. That's the usual way to do it. Um, But if you think about, for example, watching uh, like Hulu, you'll see the same ad across different episodes no matter what show you're watching because the ads are dynamically generated and are dynamically added into the episodes. So that idea to us was just groundbreaking because if we did ad insertion, that means that we could insert an ad not just to the latest version, the latest episode, we could insert it into every single episode in our entire archive. And this meant that each month, about half our downloads came from the archive and only half came from the newest episode. Right. So we could essentially double our revenue by doing ad insertion. And that's exactly what happened. We literally doubled our revenue in the course of like a couple of weeks because that's how long it took to go back and, you know, cut... 200 episodes of a podcast <laughs> and yeah totally it, it was a very to, to manual build in process. the space yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, was, it took a very long time but we did it and that literally i mean generated like a 50 100 percent increase in our business so that was huge the other big thing that happened is last year I was in the middle of working on CodeNewbie with one of my best friends and we were working together with the intention of possibly building a product out of Code Newbie and she was going to, you know, be a, I guess, not technically a co-founder since I already found the company, but like a partner of the company. And during that time, I had to figure out, okay, she can't just keep working for free. I have to pay her, but I can't like afford to. Like I just, I just right. don't make enough money to be able to like pay a full-time person. And so I was like, oh man, I'm going to have to like, double all my prices. That's like literally the only way I can do it. And I need to start selling it in packages instead of selling it off of like a per week basis. And so at that point, I came up with annual sponsorships. And I literally doubled the amount of money that we were paying that we were charging. And I was like, I crossed my fingers. I said, Oh, man, I really hope this works. Um, And then it did. It totally worked. And people were totally down for paying not the full year, but they were willing to pay up to six months at a time. And they were willing to pay the new prices, the new way that we were pricing the, the podcast ads. And so she and I ended up not working together. And so now we just had like this extra revenue that we didn't have prior to needing to make that money. So uh, necessity is a mother of invention. That was definitely true in terms of the reinvention of our sponsorship packages. But those two moments make up the 20% that, I mean, literally brought in so much more revenue than previously.
0: And a lot of people ask me about how to charge for podcasting. For instance, for my shows, I charge flat. A lot of people charge per listener. How do you how do you do your show when it comes to sponsorship?
1: I don't do per listener, but I do tell them how much they can roughly expect on a per quarter basis. So the way that we do our pricing is we do it per season. So per season really, you know, matches up to per quarter. And so we'll say, you know, in in a given quarter, you can expect X thousands of downloads. And that's how we, you know, kind of set expectations. But I don't do like a CPM, which is a cost per thousand downloads. I don't do anything that specific, that particular. That just creates, I think, too many variables and too much fluctuation and just, you know, being unpredictable. So I'd rather have a flat rate that I feel confident in. I feel confident that we can reach the number that we promised and just go about it like that.
0: Yeah, same. I just think it's so important to hear that just because you see something on Google is done a lot of ways doesn't mean you have to do it that way. You're the first person outside of me that I've ever heard charges flat.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the, <laughs> the thing is, like, if you look at it on a CPM basis, we are extremely expensive. Like, we are, like, it doesn't make sense how much we, we cost based on just, like, a strict because Because CPMs range from, like, 25 bucks per thousand listeners to, like, 100, maybe, like, 150, like that, which is, I mean, we charge way more than that. But we can afford to do that because our customers... Are very, very niche. Like not a right. lot of people are targeting new developers. Not a lot of people have tech podcasts that feature the, frankly, like the diversity of our, you know, of our guests that we have on the show. There aren't that many podcasts that have the the listenership that we do. And so we're a niche show. And when you're niche, because we and that's the other thing too, we don't have that many ads. We have like up to three. So I can afford to have 10 people say no if I can just get the three people to say yes. So totally. for those reasons, I can go a lot higher than I think most shows
0: can. And then also for the dynamic insertion, what was the software that you used or did you join a network?
1: No, we did it ourselves. I forget. There's basically this programming language that's made for editing audio. I forget what it's called. It's like a- AFS, AVS, something like that. Um, so it's a programming language that you can use to like program audio so you can say, you know, dot slice at timecode 03120. You know, you can basically like take an audio file and do all kinds of things with it. So my husband and I, we went through every single audio file that we had. We cut out the original ads. We created a essentially like a, a structure that said, you know, audio file one is the beginning of the interview. Audio file two is the ad. Audio file three is the middle of the interview. Audio file four is the second ad. Audio file five is the end of the interview. So we basically like had this sequence that we mapped out. And the thing that was... Really annoying is that we did ads differently <laughs> across yeah. different seasons. Yeah, I so know. we ended up needing. Yeah. I feel you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we ended up needing to create like six different types of structures in order to fit the six. So we had so for every ad we have we have like six different versions of the same ad so it fits into the different episodes correctly. So we manually cut out everything, and then the way it works is we have this script using that language I mentioned, and every time we launch a new episode every week. We will insert these six different types of ads. They're mapped out to the given episodes. And we run a script per episode that says, take these audio clips, insert them into the audio file, stitch everything back up again to make a new MP3 file, and then upload that new MP3 file to our hosting service, which is Blueberry.
0: I love that you applied coding to podcasting, (laughs) literally. (laughs) yeah I just love that I just think it is so cool yeah and And it's so much cheaper than what you
1: would get if you paid for it like we looked at ad insertion pricing and it was ridiculous I think it was like a thousand plus a month or something. it was just it was so and I'm just thinking like we can do this ourselves like I don't need you know like I don't need a service for this like we we, we're we coders like we're techie you know what I mean like we we can figure this out Um, and frankly like it's not that complicated if I showed you the script that we ran I think it's maybe like 20 lines and it's pretty human readable so it's not complicated you just have to you know You you just have to know what to do. But once you know how to do it, it's pretty straightforward.
0: And I feel like you know, not everybody listening knows how to code right now. And they could be like, oh, there's no way I could figure that out. You could hire someone or go to one of the boot camps. And what's so great about becoming a developer is that you don't want to necessarily work on something that won't be used. You get the most value when your project gets used instead of building something into the ether. So if you have a podcast and you don't know how to do this yourself... Go to one of the boot camps, see if you could partner up with a new developer and have them help you so that they could see their own work in action. Do you yeah, agree with absolutely. that? Yeah, are you on the same page with that?
1: I think so, yeah. I mean, I think that with this programming language, or it's, I don't really know if it's a I guess it's a programming language. I think it's probably one that no one's ever heard of. Like, I think the people <laughs> who've heard of it are, like, other audio engineers, probably. So you might want to connect with, like, a producer or an audio engineer if you want help with this. But um, but our producer, who has no technical background, had never heard of this language, he's able to operate and modify the script, you know, pretty easily. He needed, like, a 15-minute walkthrough, I think, and then he was able to just do it on his own now. So um I promise it's not that complicated, but it does take <laughs> a little bit. It's unfamiliar, you know. Like, if you're not, not really. used to looking code, you look at it and go what the hell is this? Um, But once you get familiar with just looking at it, it's pretty straightforward. Amazing.
0: This is amazing. Okay, so three last questions. One is with all this amazing podcasting and events and acquisition, one thing that is really bubbling up to ask you is why was having your company acquired right now the right fit for you in what you want for yourself long-term? If you were okay, why have your company acquired at all? Why was that the right fit?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. This might sound ridiculous, but I still feel like I'm figuring out kind of what I wanna do long term with my career. I don't see myself kind of going back to coding on a full time basis. I think it'll always be a part of what I do. I really enjoy it. When I was doing coding me the last, you know, couple of years I got very, very Minimal time that I got to spend coding and when I did it was so exciting and so much fun But I don't see myself going back to being an engineer full-time and podcasting is a lot of fun I really enjoy it, but I don't think I want to be a full-time podcaster And you know, frankly when I was doing could it be it felt it felt like I was a full-time podcaster That's probably where I spent the majority of my time and so I'm trying to figure out kind of what the, the next step is. I don't know what it is I want to do long term. Um, I think business school is part of my way of figuring that out of figuring out, you know, do I want to go on the more business side of tech? Or, you know, where does that lead me? Where does that end? So yeah, so it just felt like a good time to go, you know, I've done the podcasting thing. I've done the conference organizing. I know how these things work. I know how to produce a show. I know how to produce an event. And now I want a, a new challenge.
0: I love it. And Command Line Heroes, how did that come into your journey? Yeah,
1: that was really random. So some person, uh, I think it was at Red Hat, heard about me, I think from the Code Newbie podcast somehow. And so the executive producer of the show reached out uh, randomly and said, hey, we're doing this new show. We'd love to talk to you about possibly hosting it. And it's, you know, it's a Red Hat show. And I was like, Red Hat, of course, <laughs> you, don't say no to, you don't say no to that opportunity. So Red Hat is this huge enterprise company. They're actually now a part of IBM. They are most well-known for their open source technologies. They have a bunch of different enterprise products. They have uh, one of their famous ones is called OpenShift. They also have Fedora. They have a bunch of different solutions for big companies who want to do open source and who want to use open source technologies, but want the support and you know additional features and stuff that come with the Red Hat platform. For. And so we had a conversation. It was really easy. They said, you know, we're doing this narrative-driven show. It's going to have a couple acts. It's going to be, you know, some interviews, a lot of storytelling. And it was the kind of show that, frankly, I'd always wanted to do. I've always wanted to do a narrative-based, a scripted show. And most of what I do is uh, is interview-based. And so um, scripted shows are a lot more work, so much more production time, so many more people need to be involved. You need to have a composer and a sound designer and a producer and a lot of skills that, you know, I just, I don't have. If I wanted to do it, I'd have to learn how to do all those things. Right. And so I was really excited about the idea to produce the type of show that I'd never done before that I'd always wanted to do. And when I heard about kind of the topic of open source was great. And the idea of kind of telling the stories around open source was really the the draw, you know, this idea of not thinking about technology for the sake of technology, but using technology as a tool. And, you know, what are we doing with open source? What problems are we solving? What's our own history look like? Where do these tools even come from? Um, The stories around the the platform, around the community is what really got me excited.
0: That's so cool. How would you define being in tech? Because you talked about how you don't really aspire to be a full-time engineer anymore. But that doesn't mean you're not in tech. And I think the perception from the outside world is kind of murky on like, wait, do you have to be an engineer to be, quote unquote, in tech? I'm definitely in tech and I just know enough code to break a site. (laughs) So (laughs) how would you define being in tech?
1: That's a tough one. So I would define being in tech. So you know, I think that the easy one is if you're an engineer, if you're a product manager or designer, you're kind of, you know, default in tech, like that's, that's pretty easy. I think that if you work on a tech team or at a tech company, I think that still qualifies. So if you work, for example, Condé Nast, which is a magazine, I guess an editorial company that publishes magazines, um, and you're on the digital team, I think you're in tech. If you work for a fashion company, but they have a website and you're working on, you know, the the website team or the the tech, you know, the app team, then I think you're in tech. Alternatively, if you work for a tech startup or just a tech company, if you work at Google, but you're on the ad side of things, I think you're still in tech. So it's very loose. It's very tough to define. But I think if you're either on a technical team or at a company where tech is at its core, I think that counts as being in tech.
0: Yeah, and I'm on the same page as you completely. Yeah, One of my favorite questions to ask is in your career, what is one huge obstacle you've had that you've successfully overcome and how did you overcome it?
1: I think that a huge obstacle was figuring out how to make money last year when I realized that I would have to pay someone you know, a relatively competitive salary to to have them on the team, and I didn't know how to do that. That was the biggest obstacle because I was really like, oh, man, I got like a month and a half to figure this out, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like I like it is not a lot of time. And I'm hoping these companies say, yes, I'm hoping the companies that used to work with us are OK with the price increase. I'm hoping that I'm pitching it, positioning it well. Um, so that was probably the biggest obstacle was figuring out, oh, man, like I need this money. You know, I need this to make this right. work. And I just like I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it. And making that happen was the, the biggest obstacle and the biggest uh, accomplishment.
0: What would you say is the one of the best pieces of advice that you've gotten in your life in general? Just I mean, I'm sure you've gotten so much, but one thing that sticks out for you.
1: Yeah, my favorite piece of advice was given to me maybe seven years ago at this point by um, a woman named Vanessa Hurst. Uh, She's a programmer. She's amazing. And she had this little convening, this little meetup for people who wanted to give conference talks and kind of needed some help or needed some support to submit a CFP, which is a call for proposals. And so she had this little coffee. It ended up being just herself, myself and one other person. So just the three of us at a little cafe, kind of typing away at our different ideas. And I had this one idea for reading code. And for my boot camp, once we graduated, we wanted to be able to kind of level up and continue growing in our tech skills. So we decided to read different code bases every week. And we'd like just talked about what we read and what we understood. And so I wanted to build a talk around this idea of having a reading code club and what that looked like and how to That's do one. That's so make
0: cool. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> did you do it?
1: Uh, did I do the talk?
0: The, no, the Reading Code Club. Yeah, so
1: I did it. Um, I did it for a while. I did it for maybe like up to a year. That's awesome. It yeah, it was It was good. We learned a lot. Um, So I was thinking like I want to turn this into a talk and like give people advice yeah. on how they should do it. And I'm thinking this is like such a lame idea. Like this is just like a nerdy, lame thing that like, no one's going to be interested in. And I said that to Vanessa and she was like, no, 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 this is a really good idea. You should totally do a talk on it. And so I was like, all right, fine. Like, I'll put in a CFP. Um, and this is a CFP for RailsConf, which is, you know, the biggest conference for Rails developers. And so um, this conference had hundreds of, of submitted CFPs. And so as I'm writing mine, I look at Vanessa and I go, you know, I feel like I'm not, like, ready to give a talk. Like, I feel like maybe I should start with a meetup or, like, a small local organization. And then, like, eventually, like, I'll move up to this, to, like, such a huge conference. And she looked at me and she goes, I don't believe in stepping stones. <laughs> And I was like, oh oh my God. I was like, this is the most amazing thing ever. And I was like, okay, I don't believe in stepping stones either. I will submit this talk. And so I submitted the talk. And I think it was like a month later, I was sitting on the train on my way home. And I was sitting across from these two little old ladies. And I opened up my inbox and it said, congratulations, your talk has been accepted. And I screamed and then I cried and then I laughed hysterically and I definitely scared the two old ladies in front of me. But I was so excited. Like I just, I couldn't believe that the first talk I ever submitted got picked. I couldn't believe that it got picked at this like incredible, famous, huge conference. And I ended up giving that talk at least another 10 to 14 times at conferences literally all over the world. So um, that was my, my favorite piece of advice.
0: I have the biggest smile on my face right now. I'm so (laughs) glad I asked you that question. (laughs) It's a good question, yeah. It's been such a delight to talk to not only a fellow woman in tech, but like a fellow podcaster. Like it's just, it's really been cool. I just kind of a little like, Secret insight: What is your setup right now that you're using? I, I was sharing before we we started recording that it's very delightful for me to hear such clean audio coming from. I <laughs> guess uh, what's the setup that you're using?
1: Sure. So I am sitting in front of my closet. The back of what I'm facing right now is uh, all of my clothes covered in a black comforter because black absorbs echoes and sound a little bit better. I am pulling the covers around me, so I'm making a little fort for myself. And then as far as my tech, I'm using the Shure Beta 87A. I'll actually tell you, I spent, I think, a month testing eight different mics in different environments. So I tested the egg carton type material. I've tested foam. I've tested towels. I've tested comfort. I've tested like all kinds of things. And the best combination that I found was the Shure Beta 87A. It's a condenser mic in my closet in front of clothes and a comforter. So that was like the best combination I could find. (laughs) And then it's um, it's an XLR mic. So you need a a converter to hook it up into the computer. So I'm using an Onyx Blackjack, which is basically a, a mixer. And so that's hooked up to my computer. And then I'm
0: recording locally on QuickTime. Love it. And I'm recording locally as well with an H6, Zoom, and we're using Squadcast for a virtual recording, which is pretty great. It's just been so exciting to have you on the podcast. How can people connect with you further? Where can they find you?
1: Uh, Best place is probably Instagram and Twitter. Um, Both the same handle. Saranyat Barak, just my first name, last name. Um, I'm pretty good at dms my dms are open i've kind of slacked a little bit in the last like mother two, but uh that's probably the best way to reach me is like a dm or just tweet at me directly and would love to get in touch with you all
0: and can you spell your name for everybody
1: sure s-a-r-o-n-y-i-t-b-a-r-e-k
0: and very last question what book do yeah. you recommend we read
1: Oh my goodness, that's such a good question. Oh, I have so many. Okay, let me think. think. Which one? I mean, you do have the book club. (laughs) I did. That's true. Can I recommend two? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so the first one is more of like for fun. The Born a Crime book by uh, Trevor Noah is one of the best books I've ever read. It's so, so good. It's... The story of his life in South Africa, growing up in South Africa, it is full of the most hilarious stories, but it also has a lot of history of South Africa. I realized I knew nothing about apartheid and just how it affected people and how it worked. And he does a beautiful job of weaving in like just straight up history with stories and how his life growing up was affected by it. But it's not in like a sad, depressing way. It's just in a look, this is my life. This is just how things were. So it's a fascinating read. Really, really good. Absolutely love it. The second book I want to recommend is to Pixar and beyond, which is the story of Pixar. But it's like the story of Pixar from a very, very detailed business perspective. And it is a fascinating read. It's by the previous CFO of Pixar. And it talks about just how much, financial trouble pixar was in um how they raised every single round how they ipo'd but he does it in like the most detail ever and it taught me so much about business and so much about like how money actually moves in real life and how it is not as glamorous as it looks like when you read the headlines on you know TechCrunch and wall street journal like it's not that fancy it's just a lot of just grunt work so that was one of my favorite books i absolutely love that book
0: That's awesome. I forgot to ask, what's your favorite tech tool? Um, Mobile app, hardware, software?
1: I really enjoy Sketch which is Ooh. a mock-up tool, I guess. It's like it's like the, the web designer version of using like Photoshop or Illustrator. So it's made for like mock-ups and wireframes. I really, really enjoy that tool. I think it is just so much fun to use. It's such a delight. I really love making mock-ups. Like I'm not a very good designer, but I'm like a good enough designer, if that makes right. sense. Like I can make things happen. They're not the best, but yeah. like they work. Um, right. And so I really enjoy using sketch. It's, it's just a delight. It's really easy to use. It feels very fluid. It feels very um, intuitive. And yeah, that's my favorite tech tool.
0: Thank you so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast. If you want to connect and collaborate with more extraordinary women in tech around the world, remember, go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at tech vip.com takes you straight there. I will see you guys in the next episode. Be sure to say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Bye. Goodbye.
1: I'm Zrania Barak, and I am the founder of Code Newbie, and I'm also the host of the Command Line Heroes podcast produced by Red Hat. And at Code Newbie, we produce content for people who are learning how to code. I'm based in New York City, and you are listening to Women in Tech. Hi, my name is Hannah Mofeed, and I'm the founder of Code Hers a nonprofit organization dedicated to inspiring and empowering women in tech. I just found out about the Command Line Heroes podcast, but I was instantly hooked. I love the unique progression of the narration, covering the topics like a story. The lighthearted and versatile structure of it allows the narrator to enlighten us about tech, from the 1980s at the beginning of season one, all the way to now, giving us the fun and deep insight into inventions that allow humankind to function so efficiently. The podcast brings bits and pieces of the narration to life by including the real people who were associated to that famous topic, highlighting how genuine the storylines are. I admire how this podcast is both educating and entertaining at the same time. You can follow me on
0: Instagram at GoCodeHers. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo.
1: Edited by Adam Carroll.
0: And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production.